Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Supreme Court's reversal on abortion rights is so actually and potentially devastating that it's hard to know where to look. It's worth tracing things back. Catherine Stewart in The Guardian, among others, walks us through how, at a time when most Protestant Republicans, including the Southern Baptist Convention, hailed the liberalization of abortion law represented by Roe, Christian nationalists, motivated by a desire to protect school segregation and tax exemptions for Christian schools, selected abortion as a way to unite conservatives across denominational barriers by providing a focal point for anxieties about social change. Phyllis Schlafly wrote a whole book called How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life about the work involved in forcing the GOP to center abortion as a cause, which then became the longer-term effort to reframe religious liberty as exemption from law. The names Paul, I don't want everybody to vote, Wyrick, and Bob Jones Sr., who called segregation God's established order, may also mean something to you. While we trace the roots, which disabuses us of the notion that this specious pro-life political stance is socially organic, we need to also be looking for the branches, the other obvious growing harms to human rights and liberties that are encouraged and fully intended by this ruling. The Guttmacher Institute's Elizabeth Nash and Lauren Cross reported the, as of last summer, 536 abortion restrictions, including 146 abortion bans, introduced across 46 states as right-wing ideologues, quote, engaging in a shock and awe campaign against abortion rights as part of a large and deliberate attack on basic rights that also includes a wave of voter suppression laws and attacks on LGBTQ people. Close quote. It's important to understand that, as Catherine Stewart writes, the Dobb decision, quote, marks the beginning rather than the end point of the agenda this movement has in mind. Close quote. In the face of this, those who believe in reproductive justice will need better public arguments than what liberal media have tended to offer. That abortion is a horrible thing that should really never happen but that nevertheless should be legal. There's a hole in the middle of corporate media speak on abortion where we could be saying, as Katha Pollitt put it in her book Pro, that abortion is an essential option for all people, not just those in dramatic, terrible, body-and-soul-destroying situations, and that access to abortion benefits society as a whole. We're going to make a start on the many multi-level, multi-angle post-row conversations we need to be having with Jessica Mason-Peaklow, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor at Rewire News Group. She's been reporting reproductive rights for many years now. And we'll also hear a bit of a conversation we had last May when we knew the court had Roe in its sights with Preston Mitchum, Director of Policy at the group Urge, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. We talked with him about putting Roe and court rulings in general 
in a context of what else needs and has always needed to happen to make reproductive justice real. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. In their story last May, headlined Supreme Court to Hear Abortion Case Challenging Roe v. Wade, the New York Times told readers that with consideration of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court was plunging back into the contentious debate over abortion. But the right established in Roe versus Wade of the individual and not the state to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy prior to the point at which a fetus could live outside the womb is actually not really contentious. Majorities of the U.S. public support it, have supported it, and for some 50 years, courts have as well. The reversal of Roe by the current court, therefore, presents a challenge to journalists. Reflect actual public opinion, tell the real history of jurisprudence, and explain the particular political deformation of the current court, or revert to a some-say-others-differ mode that subsumes the public will and human rights into a backdrop of beltway conventional wisdom. And that would remind us again why corporate media might not be the place for the conversations we need to have to move us forward. Well, let's talk about that with Jessica Mason Piclo, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor at Rewire News Group, which has kept a long term eye on the issues of reproductive rights and justice. She joins us now by phone from Colorado. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jessica Mason Piclo. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you've been reporting on reproductive justice and the courts for more than a minute. And you wrote recently that you used to sort of parse legal rulings and look at the language and look at what it meant, but that with Dobbs, it didn't even really merit that kind of inspection. And it kind of represented a categorical change in what the court says and does. I wonder if we could start with that on the ruling itself and why you think that it represented a kind of change in the way the court speaks on these issues. Sure. Thank you. I think that's an excellent place to start. You know, within the legal movement, both the conservative and progressive legal movements prior to the Dobbs decision, really since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there were in the courts a more honest debate over what the state could or could not do in terms of regulating pregnancy and childbirth and those outcomes. And that was under the Planned Parenthood versus Casey framework. That was the great abortion compromise that the Supreme Court came up with as a way to save Roe and 
sort of settled this debate, so to speak, for the ages. And what happened as a result of the political campaign to take over the courts and to really move this issue away from the will of the people and into a, min a minoritarian space is that the Dobbs decision is a perfect reflection of that. It cherry picks history. It cherry picks the law. And it really just comes to a conclusion that was predetermined by Sam Alito and the other conservative justices on the court. And I think that's the one thing that I, that I really hope folks understand that is really different with this iteration of the Roberts Court and what we will see amplified moving forward is that for the conservative legal movement, it is outcome determinative. So it doesn't matter what the law says. They will find the outcome that they are looking for and work the law backwards to make it fit. Well, that seems seismic and something that we would hope that journalism would recognize and not simply try to stuff this new reality into an old framework. And I wonder what you as a reporter make of the way, and I know it's all in media's rest, you know, they're trying to figure it out as we all are, but what do you make of the way media are addressing what you're saying is this is not the same. We have to address yeah. this differently. Are media rising to that challenge? I, you know, there are fits and starts. I think yeah. that along with the you know general public, there is an understanding within more mainstream and beltway media that the institutions are failing yeah. in this moment. Whether it's the political leadership, whether it's our institutions like the Supreme Court, they are failing. And our entire democratic experiment in this country is at risk right now. And my concern is that that realization is starting to dawn a little too late for folks who really have the ability to do something about it. But I do remain hopeful that folks are seeing the moment for what it is. I think the shift that we saw in some of the conversation around the court when the Dobbs opinion was leaked in May and then, you know, the follow-up opinion actually being released and not changing substantively at all. I mean, I think that's been really interesting to see is how, you know, the leak happened and then the final opinion came out and there weren't really any changes. Even some of the most, like, egregious parts of the opinion that media latched onto about a, you know, steady sub domestic supply of infants, for example, that's still in the final opinion. Right. Right? So I think as the dust settles and truly how extreme the reality is, I, I do think they're starting to latch onto it. I worry, though, that media has ingrained habits. And that is one of the areas where in three months from the Dobbs decision and in six months from the Dobbs decision, I'm concerned that journalists who don't cover this issue and the Supreme Court on the regular will fall back into habits that they know just because that's what we all do as humans, right? We just sort of fall into our old habits. I'm concerned yep. that we'll see that in the media as well and a return to treating abortion as a political issue to be resolved in state houses and in Congress as opposed to a human rights crisis that is unfolding in this country right now. Absolutely. Well, concretely, as we speak, Biden has introduced an executive order that talks about government level 
protections Mm -hmm. for abortion rights. But I wonder what you make of that generally. And then where do you see the fight right now? Mm -hmm. Big question. (laughs) It's a huge question. So let me sort of take them in reverse order. Right now, the fight is absolutely in the states and in your local communities about getting people access to care that they need. This is a scramble. Where I live in Colorado, for example, when the Texas ban first went into effect almost a year ago, we saw a 500% increase in patient need here in the state of Colorado, and that's only increased since then. So even in states that currently protect abortion access, it is really, really difficult to access care. So that is, that's the immediate moment that needs to be met is just getting people access to health care. The political moment is a real one, too, though, and I was glad to see the administration release the executive order. There are some good parts to it. It doesn't go far enough. It is too vague. I mean, there are lots of places to criticize, but I think it is important that we have finally at least something to start with. I was happy to see that the administration was taking seriously the need to really address attacks on people's rights to travel for care, because this is something that extends well beyond the abortion issue. If we start to unravel the constitutional right to travel in this country, we have no idea where that goes, right? right? So there are big warning signs in the Dobbs decision for a whole panoply and host of other rights for us. The Biden administration taking action on this with this executive order is a good initial first step. I don't think it goes far enough. I also think it doesn't matter what the administration did with regard to abortion rights. Republicans and the conservatives on the right were going to say that it went too far anyway. So you might as well swing for the fences at this moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, We've always made a point on this show to acknowledge that some people were never touched by Roe, if you will. Anybody relying on public assistance wouldn't have access to this so-called right. Understanding that just makes for a longer timeline and understanding of this fight. And, and, And it also highlights groups that have been providing access to abortion even while it was supposedly provided for everyone. All of it comes back to say what I know that you think about, which is that when we talk about these rights, they're not equally accessed by everyone. And it's Mm -hmm. important for reporters in particular who are talking about the reality of Roe or post-Roe to acknowledge that it impacts different people differently. Absolutely. I mean, for so many people in this country, Roe was already aspirational at best. So what we will see as part of the fallout from this decision is that those folks who were already struggling and marginalized in their ability to access care will only be more so. There, for example, the Holman's Health in Texas has announced that they are moving its clinics to New Mexico as a result of Texas's trigger law being able to take effect, which bans abortion tech, abortions functionally banned in the state of Texas right now. And so while it's good that Holman's Health is able to move services to New Mexico, to a state 
where there's protected access and help facilitate the travel of patients to New Mexico. The reality is that some of those clinics, like the McAllen Clinic, were serving the Rio Grande Valley that had no access to health care at all. With those clinics closing, then that's not just abortion care that's going away. So we're exacerbating these deserts. And who, who's accessing that in the Rio Grande Valley? Well, those are largely Latina and undocumented people. Right. And I guess I want to say two things with that is that both it means that those folks who have lacked access continue to lack access, but also that folks have been making networks to get access. Yes. Even while nominally abortion was legal, it wasn't for them. And so those networks exist and those people exist and we should acknowledge that that's there. Absolutely. Some of the silver linings of this moment has been witnessing those networks that were already in place, local direct aid and practical aid support groups. Those are folks who, you know, give patients and people who need money to travel to care, hotels, gas, those kinds of things, along with abortion funds, making sure people can have money for their procedures because most of the time this isn't covered by insurance and they're paying out of pocket and that is very expensive. I mean, it's not like these are cheap procedures. So to see those networks in place and really be able to rise up in this moment is why we do the work, honestly. But it's also tragic because there's so beleaguered right now. They're so overwhelmed. The need for care is so much. And they're also human beings in in their own response. And so they are functional first responders to this huge crisis with very little support of their own. Absolutely. We are trying to pull out differently impacted groups. And one of them that is maybe not getting that much attention is young people. And I know that you've written about another Supreme Court ruling, um, Bilotti, that has a special impact here that I haven't heard media talking about. What's meaningful there? So the Bilotti decision, as you said, absolutely does protect the right of minors to be able to access abortion. That is under fire at this point as well, along with a whole host of others. When we talk about the harm that abortion bans create and where impact falls, minors who need access are really at the sort of tip of that spear. Mm -hmm. And we see that a thousandfold. And, And I could talk about this for hours, but let me kind of draw a real fine point on it in response to the Dobbs decision and the fallout at the state level of these abortion bans, we had the American Pediatric Association issue a statement on the harms of mandating childbirth for children. And I pause there on purpose because the American Pediatric Association is a non-political body. Their job is to set standards of medical care for pediatricians across the country. And they are now in a spot where they are having to say that the stated policy goals of the conservative movement are contrary to human rights law. This court is taking us to a very, very dark place so quickly. So the Bilotti ruling was a 
What was that about briefly? What were the facts of that Oh, case? sure. Absolutely. So the Bilotti decision was one of the sort of first decisions to come from Roe that said functionally teenagers don't have to have their parents' consent. You know, minors don't have to have their parents' consent to have an abortion, that there can be other processes involved if consent is not available. And so that creates the pathway for what's called judicial bypass. And now there is a real push to not only upend judicial bypass and mandate parental consent, sometimes two-parent consent, but for example, in the state of Texas, the Republican platform there is suggesting that if People stay on their parents' insurance, as is allowed under the Affordable Care Act, until they're 26, that their parents have to consent to a whole host of these kinds of procedures. So this is an attack on the autonomy of young people in really disturbing ways. And you put that in line with the decision that the Supreme Court released at the end of this term, the Bruin decision on guns. And we're functionally telling young people in this country that they have no right to feel secure in their body. Final thoughts from you, Jessica, about what reporters could be doing more of or less of as they cover, as they certainly will, the question of abortion rights going forward. What would you like to see more or perhaps less of? Um, I would really love to see more centering of the patients and providers, not in terms of the tragedy stories, but in terms of really what it means to deny people access to basic health care as a stated policy position in this country. And I would love to see reporters take these cases where we have a 10-year-old assault victim who has to travel across state lines to have an abortion and know that that might not even be guaranteed. I want those stories to go back to the elected officials and get them on the record for defending these positions. They campaign off of this. They raise millions of dollars off of this. They should stand by the results of their policy. We've been speaking with Jessica mason Peaklow. She's Senior Vice President and Executive Editor at Rewire News Group. They're online at rewirenewsgroup.com. Jessica mason Peaklow, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe was forecast by many people who've been watching the signs at that level, along with the increasing number of state-level predations on abortion rights. Many, too, have been fighting for years for understanding and discussion of abortion that goes beyond Roe, and indeed beyond the legal sphere, situating abortion rights and access within a broader frame of reproductive justice. In May of 2021, Counterspin spoke with Preston Mitchum, Director of Policy at the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, as well as Adjunct Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center. Mitchum noted that Roe rights were never really real for many people. It's never been enough and we still need it, is how he put it. 
Later, I shared a major complaint of mine about the way corporate media, while generally editorially supportive of the right to abortion, portray the issue. Well, in terms of media coverage, I'm always incensed when I see media present abortion as a cultural issue, as as if it's kind of a soft issue as opposed to a serious issue like economics, you know? If there's anything more central to economic life than the ability to decide whether and when to have a child, I can't imagine what it is. And yet, again and again in media, we see even, you know, Reuters talking about this. Supreme Court jumps into U.S. culture wars. You know, I just, I feel that the way media talk about abortion, it kind of lines up with the White House where you don't say the word abortion because that's icky, you know, so you don't present it as a central economic core integral right for human beings to have. It's instead something that, you know, religious people care about or something. Exactly. And what it does is, is, is it continues to drive a wedge that shouldn't be a wedge. You know, when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about life-saving treatment that people actually need. It's medical care. It's health care. And in many ways, all statistics show that abortion care is safer than giving birth. And so, you know, those are statistics and facts that many people, unfortunately, who are driving this quote-unquote culture war narrative don't want people to to believe or understand, but it's true. And unfortunately, what it does, it undermines the necessary conversation we must have around reproductive health rights and justice, especially reproductive justice. So, of course, reproductive justice is more than abortion. It's, It's comprehensive. But we're talking about the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Abortion access is a critical part of maintaining reproductive justice for Black folks, for Indigenous folks, for Asian, American, and Pacific Islander communities. And we must center it on the work where people can create a future for themselves, where every person can make their own decisions with dignity, with autonomy, and with self-determination. And you're absolutely right. When media coverage and narrative is about culture war, it creates this idea that only some people should have abortion access, that the people who do want abortion access are the people who are against what is actually the moralistic framing of this country. And it creates this divide of good and bad. Abortion is not about good or bad. Abortion is about access and creating the families and the communities that we want, that we can see, and that can thrive in the system that we have today. That was Preston Mitchum from the group Urge, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, speaking with Counterspin in May of 2021. And that's it for the show for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, or to sign up for our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.